All right, my friends, and everyone interested in this ancient text called the Bible, we are diving into one of the most deep, difficult passages in Romans, a passage that has nearly shipwrecked my own faith and has been very difficult for me to figure out how do I talk about this thing because we're going to get into predestination. We're going to get into, can I give my salvation up to save somebody else? We're going to get into some really deep and sticky topics today, stuff that is way beyond my capacity to like intellectually understand and process. And so we're just going to do the best dumb Christian job that we can to walk through Romans chapter nine, because Paul is pressing into some stuff that's really complex and, and, and even touching on some things that are beyond the scope of what he's trying to tell us. And so what do we do with this? And the Bible's about to get very real. We might get a little bit colorful. So buckle up. And welcome to Dumb Christian. Paul starts Romans chapter 9 off. We're doing chapters 9 and 10 in this uh, episode. Be sure to read it for yourself as always. But Paul starts off this um, chapter, chapter 9, by saying, God knows I'm not just making this up. I promise you guys, if I could give up my salvation that I have only by believing in Jesus Christ so that the rest of the nation of Israel, the rest of the Jewish nation could be saved, even though they've rejected Jesus as Messiah, I would do that. And his reasoning is a little bit confusing. He talks about the human race and he, he almost like kind of dives into uh, trying to unpack this like really deep theological uh, idea that, uh, that God is actually doing a lot more than we realize when Jesus shows up on the scene to do a lot more redemption and restoring of creation and some damage that other races, angelic, uh, spiritual beings, Nephilim, right? Like we're not going to get into it, but Paul's making reference. He's saying, hey, out of all the things that God is doing in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, I want you guys to understand there's something incredibly significant about the human race, that we're all on the same page, and that to do it for the human race, God chose Abraham and his descendants. God said, I'm going to make a nation. I'm going to make a new family of people who are my children the nation of Israel from the bloodline of Abraham who who are going to I'm going to use Abraham as this model example for his kids and his descendants for hundreds of generations to follow as an example and he says and and the fact that God chose a people that God out of everyone, he selected the people he wanted to use, not because anyone was amazing or someone was perfect, but because God is God. And he said, I'm going to create a way to restore the human race so that they can have a right relationship with me. And I pick Abraham and I'm going to use Abraham's kids. Abraham and Sarah couldn't have kids. And God says, perfect, I'm going to use them to create a nation 
of people who will follow me and and that will actually make way for a messiah so that the rest of the world can have a restored redeemed right relationship with god and paul is saying man I just wish everyone who is a descendant of Abraham understood the value of what God was doing by predestining, by electing to use them in his process of restoring people. And he he goes through this process and he says, look, God chose for himself. God elected to use Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob. He says, you know, even before Jacob and Esau were born, they were twins. It says that God chose Jacob over Esau, not because one did something better than the other, but because God chose to do it and that God was deliberately choosing. I'm going to make a way, even if everyone else doesn't want to have anything to do with me. I've got to make a way for this to happen. And so God elects who he's going to use in this process. And he uses Abraham. And he, he, he says, Abraham is the, the example, the mold through which he wants his children to walk into restoration and redemption. Ultimately, it's going to be the sacrifice that Jesus makes uh, that gives access to the way people can have redemption. But it's that they believe, they trust God to do it, not that they're able to do it on their own because Abraham trusted. All right, God, we can't have kids, but if you say so, we believe it's going to happen. And then here's a little interesting thing that Paul kind of gets into a little bit. He starts to talk about how even though Abraham trusted God, there's still kind of like this idea like, okay, I trust God, but is there something that I need to be doing? Is there a way I need to participate in God's promise? Um, I trust him. So do I need to take steps on my own? And and what they did, Abraham and Sarah trusted God, but they said, um, maybe we need to participate in some way. So they agreed that Abraham would have sex with their housemaid, Hagar, to try and have kids for them. And he uses this kind of as an example to show like Abraham trusted God, but every time he tried to participate, every time he tried to contribute to God's promise, it actually made things worse. Having sex with Hagar actually conceived a child that isn't the one that God wanted to use to bring about the nation of Israel. It caused problems between Abraham and Sarah, his wife. It caused problems with the maid in the house, right? It caused problems later between the son he had with Hagar Ishmael and the son he would later have with Sarah, um, Isaac. Yeah. It caused problems. And Paul is using this as an example to say, this is also the type of picture that we can see that, yes, we can trust God wants to save us, but whenever we start to think, I need to participate, I need to contribute in the process of how God wants to save me, it's just going to make things more difficult. It's actually going to make things worse. It's not helpful when we say, okay, God, now I'm going to help you save me. Ultimately, it comes down to, do you trust that God's going to fulfill his promise like he did through giving Abraham and Sarah their own son, Isaac, not when they tried to help out and they birthed 
Ishmael. And then he gets, he kind of shifts his language to talk about election and predestination. I want to take just a real brief second to make room for these words. Because these words are the ones that nearly shipwrecked my faith. Because the way that a, a, you know, I would say about 15, 1600s, the way that these words began to be taught, um, asserted that God arbitrarily decides who gets to be saved and everyone else doesn't get to be saved. And I had to walk through this as I'm sure anyone else would, but we need to remember the context in which Paul is speaking. And there's, like I said, you guys, there are people much smarter than me who have spent a lot more time trying to unpack this. Um, and, and so if you're interested in what those ideas are and the way that people talk about predestination and election, I'll actually put in the description below two different books. Um, the, the two main ways that these words are viewed are is through the lens of um, what's called Reformed theology or Calvinism, and then the other is Arminianism. Like I said, big words, but we're just dumb Christians here. So I'll put those, I'll put some links in the bottom to some books if you guys want to really get into it. But from a dumb Christian perspective, we're just going to try and step back and understand the context in which Paul is using these words. He says, God, the work that God was doing in the human race is work that he decided he was going to do in a very particular way. There are references, Paul makes references to Isaiah and um, Ezekiel, maybe, but a couple of Old Testament prophets who are talking about how God preserved an elect to be a, a group of elect people to be saved. And he talks about vessels of wrath versus vessels of mercy. He talks about Abraham, Moses, Pharaoh. And, and so we're just going to like try and condense this. What is he talking about in all of this? He says, God made vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. We've talked about before that in the context of Romans, the word wrath is most likely referring to the brokenness and the the effects of sin that is seen and experienced while we're here on earth, right? Death and suffering and pain and despair, hopelessness, fear, right? These are real things that come about as a result of sin. And then he uses the picture of Moses and Pharaoh to kind of help illustrate what he means when he's talking about vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy, He says, God had made some vessels of wrath, and he associates that with Pharaoh of Exodus, which, by the way, after Romans, we're going to take some time. We got some dumb Christian guys that uh, we're going to be walking through, and a few episodes there that I'm really excited about, and then we're going to go into Exodus 
and explore what's going on there. But he uses this picture. He says, Pharaoh. God used Pharaoh as a vessel of wrath. And he used Moses as a vessel of mercy. A vessel of wrath is someone that God has assigned the job, the task of really portraying and and conveying the need for mercy. They behave in a way that everyone around them sees the need for God's mercy and experiences the consequences of a life without God's mercy. This is a vessel of wrath. A vessel of mercy is someone that God has prepared and designed to accomplish some tasks, behave in a certain way so that everyone around them experiences and sees this is what it's like to walk in and receive God's mercy when they realize how desperately they need it. Now, the word vessel actually means um, a tool, but it can also mean fishing tackle. And the way Paul is using the word vessel is not that God has destined you to, this is your ultimate destiny. If, if, if God assigned you the role of to be a vessel of wrath, you're, it sucks to suck, bro, but that's your ultimate destiny and, and that's all you can do is, is wind up as a tool of wrath and you're destined to hell. That's the kind of language that has been used to describe this. But if we understand that Paul is trying to help us understand that God is doing something very specific for the human race so that the work of Jesus Christ can be preserved and then later available to everybody, he's saying God has deliberately chosen to use certain people to reveal the need for his mercy and chosen other people to reveal how wonderful it is to receive God's mercy. But being a vessel either of wrath or mercy is not the thing that determines your eternal condition. God can use a vessel of wrath or a vessel of mercy in any way that does its job But being a vessel of wrath isn't condemning that person to hell. Being a vessel of mercy doesn't automatically mean that that person is in right relationship with God. Both people, whether they are a vessel of wrath or of mercy, will have to decide what to do with God's grace, with Jesus, ultimately with Jesus. Obviously, Jesus wasn't part of the equation back in Exodus with Pharaoh and Moses, but he's using that as a picture to show how God throughout history has been deliberately choosing people, using them for specific roles to accomplish a specific purpose so that when Jesus shows up on the scene to save the human race, everyone will have full access he, he makes reference to, like I said, some of the older prophets who say God has el- preserved an elect, a group of elect people. He's to, to be saved, uh, specifically in Israel. But it carries, if you go back to the stories, it carries with it this idea that, that he's referencing that if God had not chosen to intervene, to step in, to predestine that group to be preserved and saved, then God's ultimate plan of bringing about salvation through Jesus Christ would have not been accomplished. 
but God deliberately intervenes. And we talked about this in Genesis when we, when we looked at the flood and the tower of Babel. And it's not that God's saying, well, shit, if I don't inter- if I don't do something, we're screwed. But he's looking at it and saying, well, I need to intervene here. Otherwise, our ultimate plan and goal of redeeming and saving everyone isn't going to happen. So God has predestined Jesus Christ to be the mode through which salvation is received, experienced, um, and, and, and he has elected to use certain people in particular ways, sometimes in ways that are unpleasant and sometimes in ways that are really exciting, but ultimately to point to Jesus. And this is a little bit difficult, I think, for us to wrap our heads around, because then Paul shifts and, and he, he, he can hear the Roman argument of this new church. Because some of these people, right, they came out of paganism. They worshiped these false gods. They engaged in wrathful activities, right? They're hearing Paul and, and he, they can start to identify, oh, I behaved in a way like Pharaoh. I rejected God. I rebelled. I committed these sins, whatever. I oppressed people. And 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 there's, you know, the on the other hand, the Jewish nation, the, the Jewish believers who are thinking, oh, wow, we had it so good. We're vessels of mercy. Look, Jesus came through our lineage to save the human race. And Paul is saying, look, you guys are both on the same playing field. You both equally are going to have to decide what to do with Jesus. Being a vessel of wrath or a vessel of mercy doesn't default you to an eternal condition. And he addresses that issue and says, look, you Gentiles, this isn't just for the Jewish nation. This is actually for you too. God has a job for you to do. And sometimes we're going to love the jobs that God has for us. And sometimes we don't. Sometimes we hate it. God, why would you do this to me? Why would you put me in this situation? Why did you make me a vessel of wrath that I have to go through these shitty life experiences, that I have to go through my spouse having an affair, my spouse being abusive, my me walking through sinful things that, well, God, you know, I had an affair or I committed these abuses or sacrificed these children or, you know, led the orgies, whatever, like, God just made me to behave this way. And and Paul is saying, well, he's using you to demonstrate for everyone, including yourself, how desperately everyone needs grace. That's our broken state, our broken nature. We go back to Romans 3, right? All have sinned. Everyone has become depraved. And, and it's not like anyone is getting any better. So God uses us in our broken state. And he says, okay, I'm going to use you as fishing tackle, as a vessel, a tool in the state that you're in to demonstrate how good I am. But then also on the flip side, like maybe you think I've got, man, my life is so good. I, I've got all the money I want. I've got all the love and affection and attention I want. I've got the cars that I want. My, my church loves me. My friends just, you know, can't shut up about how great I am. I, and, 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 and it looks like there's this picture of, wow, 
there's something there about value and and pleasure and satisfaction and God saying look that's what you can have not necessarily you know the health and wealth gospel but this idea that God has better things good blessings maybe not here on earth but in eternity giving us a picture of what his mercy looks like despite the fact of a broken world in both situations if you're used as a vessel of wrath or a vessel of mercy both point to god's goodness and both have to still decide what are you going to do with jesus because both of those people in either circumstance can look at their condition and say well Look at how great I have it. I must be doing a great job of helping God with my salvation, contributing to my salvation. Or the person who, you know, is just stuck in the cycles of brokenness and hopelessness, fear, suffering, right? Like, man, God can't save me or I don't have anything to offer, but it's still stuck on this idea of what can I contribute to my salvation? Paul says, It has nothing to do with your ability to contribute and help God save you. In fact, as he gets into Romans chapter 10, he says, the righteousness of God being saved, being redeemed, always comes back to whether or not you trust him to do the things that he promised he would do. Like Abraham, I promise I'll give you kids And every time we contribute, it just screws things up and makes it worse. Even in the garden, right? You go back to the Garden of Eden. When they were forbidden to eat the fruit, it wasn't a matter of, um, you know, eating the fruit per se, but it it came down to did they trust that God actually had their greatest good in mind? No, they felt like God was hiding something from them, keeping something from them. God doesn't want us to experience whatever comes from eating the fruit. They didn't trust him. And it always comes back to, do you trust that God keeps his promises and that his promise to save you through Jesus's sacrifice is enough without your contribution? And then we get to this really famous verse, two verses in in chapter 10, which are also, again, controversial, depending on which denomination or non-denomination you affiliate with, but it's, it's verses nine and 10 in chapters 10 for, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, if, if what you believe, you believe strong enough that you're willing to tell somebody, if that's the type of trust that you have in God, that's salvation. That's the moment you experience redemption you know, there's a lot that goes into it. What do you do with baptism? And is it, you know, saved by grace and faith alone and like all these other elements. But at its core, Paul is talking to this Roman church who is trying to figure out what does our involvement in salvation look like? And he says, it just looks like you believing to the point where you're willing to tell others about this salvation that God wants to rebuild and grow his family. He wants kids who believe in him, who trust in him. 
And, and, you know, when Paul talks about our behavior and shall I sin more so that grace may abound, like that, that gets a little kind of confusing. But ultimately what he's trying to get at is to help us understand that being God's kids looks a certain way and to challenge us and to encourage us to press into it. Okay, Holy Spirit, that he earlier told us this is how you get Holy Spirit, what Holy Spirit does in your life. He births in you this brand new perspective, this new worldview that affects everything in our life. Not that what we do contributes somehow, because that mentality isn't trusting that God has kept his promise, that he is good enough, that he's better than our ability to try Because every time we try to help out, it just makes things worse. And there is some sort of value. And and I think it kind of comes full circle at the end of chapter 10, going back to the beginning of chapter 9, when he's talking about how he wishes the people that God had elected, that God had predestined to use to bring about the Messiah. Yeah, there is something incredible about being used by God to accomplish his plan of salvation, I would suggest even to the point of saying, even if you're a vessel of wrath, there's value in the fact that God has used your life, your suffering, the things that you've walked through, maybe even the ways that you've caused damage in the world, that God is using this thing in your life to draw, to lure people in, to see his mercy and his goodness. And then he elaborates on why belief that saves includes being willing to talk about it. Because God is trying to regrow and redeem his family of humans, right? The human race. To restore right relationship with people. He says, how will people believe if someone doesn't tell them about this amazing thing that God has been doing, that God did despite people's best efforts to rebel against him, that he still preserved and protected people who otherwise would have been killed, annihilated, wiped off the face of the earth. God protected, preserved an elect group to be saved, to bring about this. And how will anyone else become a part of the family if they don't have someone to tell them? Because our participation in the family of God is also participating in his mission. We've now become chosen to preserve his his purpose and his plan of bringing more people into this to spread the word how desperate we need you know to point look at the vessels of wrath look at the ways that we need god's grace and his mercy his salvation and then look at those examples of how god has demonstrated his grace and his mercy his lavish love upon people and so that's why we tell people because as a part of the family we're a part of the mission He's speaking to these these Roman believers and, and, you know, who we go back to the very beginning of the book. He says, don't be ashamed. Don't hide in fear. This, this idea, well, 
maybe I could just be a believer in secret, in, in quietly in the background, then I won't cause any trouble. And he says, no, people have got to hear this amazing news that God has done everything to make it possible for us to have right relationship with him again. And how are they going to believe unless someone tells? And who's going to tell if not you? And that puts these brand new Roman believers in a position where they're wrestling with, okay, my family has rejected, for the Jewish believer, my family has rejected Jesus as Messiah. But I got to tell them. I got to show them how good God has been to preserve this and protect this plan of salvation. And for the Gentile who, you know, who Chad is over there trying to figure out how do I, you know, get my friends I used to have, you know, eyes wide shut, wife swapping parties worship with, how do I bring the good news to them? And how do I show them God has made a way for us to be right with the ultimate divine who is better than all these other gods that we've grown accustomed to worshiping and that have actually just caused us more pain and more suffering. Yes, everyone has access to the truth, to the goodness, to the grace, to the mercy. And it comes down to if each of us are willing to step into that role, that, that the way God wants to use us as a tool to bring people, to point people to that mercy and that grace, even if that means we have to be vessels of wrath that, that really point out how desperately we need a God that loves us. I hope this has been encouraging to you guys. I, I tried to be a little bit more chill because um, there is a lot here, and and if I've just made you more confused, um, leave a comment, send me a message, let's talk through it. Maybe I'll do a follow-up episode answering some of your questions. Um, but yeah, let me know what your thoughts are, and oh boy, uh, yeah, I just, I, I hope that it's helped encourage you as Paul was trying to help encourage these early Roman Jewish and Gentile believers who really didn't know what it meant that God did everything he could to give them this amazing opportunity at redemption. I love you guys. I'll catch you later. Oh, I can't tell you guys how many times I had to re-record and rewrite this episode because it's really tough. And even recording it now, I'm still wondering like, okay, did I say it right? Am I just leaving people more confused? Please send me a message. Let me know. Share this with your friends and your family. Check us out on YouTube, Dumb Christian Podcast. We have some exclusive content on there. Uh, hit subscribe, ring the bell so you know when new content is dropping. And I love you guys. I'll catch you later. <laughs>